Well, we return now to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1, chapter 1, verses 24 to 32. And the question that we need to consider as we come to this portion of Scripture is how do we account for the current state of our society? Our culture is absolutely steeped in sexual sin. Adultery is nearly as commonplace as marriage itself. Pornography is as accessible as any online content. And homosexuality has been almost universally embraced as a legitimate form of sexual expression. And beyond that, our society is totally incapable of making sound moral judgments. It celebrates the murder of the unborn, calling it women's productive, reproductive health. It has lost the ability to differentiate between a man and a woman. It deems doctor-assisted suicide to be an act of compassion and even views drag queen story hour to be a virtuous expression of human rights rather than a perverted act of pedophilia. And so how do we account for this? Is it from a lack of political engagement? Is it from a lack of cultural engagement? Is it from a lack of education or something else? No. So what is it? It's the wrath of God. We're simply seeing the effects of the wrath of God being unleashed on our society. And that is made abundantly clear in our text this morning. Let's begin reading in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and a birds and a four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. 
For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul is in the process of explaining why it is that the gospel reveals the saving activity of God entirely by faith. And it does for two reasons. One, because the whole world is under the condemnation of sin, both Jew and Gentile alike. And two, because receiving a right standing before God takes place entirely apart from any works of the law. No human achievement can make any contribution to this. And so salvation must be a complete work of God from start to finish. But as Paul sets out to indict the Gentiles, he anticipates an objection that the Gentile might plead his religious ignorance and might even offer his ignorance up as an excuse. And so Paul demonstrates that the Gentile is without excuse, that God has made himself known to them in creation, and that the Gentile suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. And that means that both the Gentiles' refusal to worship God as well as his idolatry aren't born out of religious ignorance. They're born out of willful rebellion, rendering the Gentile completely culpable before God. And it's for this reason that God's righteous wrath of abandonment is revealed from heaven against all sin. Because man refuses to render to God the worship he's rightly due and exchanges the glory of God 
for idolatry. That's why God's wrath is revealed from heaven. We're now going to get into how God's wrath is revealed from heaven. The distinguishing marks of God's wrath of abandonment, the consequences for refusing to worship the creator. And they're progressive in nature. Progressing from sexual impurity to homosexuality to a depraved mind. And so we're going to see three consequences for refusing to worship God. Three consequences for refusing to worship God. Realities that clearly indicate that our society is under the wrath of God. And the first is this. The consequence of sexual impurity. The consequence of sexual impurity. Look at verse 24. It says, therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. You'll note that verse 24 begins with therefore. So this is God's response to man's willful and settled rejection of God and corresponding idolatrous exchange. God gives them over. And different explanations have been offered to account for this. Some see it as nothing more than God delivering people up to the natural consequences of their sin. That this is merely a reflection of the impersonal forces of cause and effect. Others see it as a removal of God's restraining grace. And the picture is that of God holding a boat against the current only to let it go and let the current take the boat downstream. And yet God is far more active in this than either of those two explanations give him credit for. As one commentator puts it, quote, God does not simply let the boat go. He gives it a push downstream, unquote. And so the giving over depicted here is neither impersonal nor passive. It's both personal and active. God personally and actively gives them over. As a judge delivers a criminal to the just penalty for their crime, God delivers the idolater to the just penalty for his idolatry. So what's the just penalty for idolatry? Sexual impurity. Again, it says there, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So the pursuit of sexual impurity is a divinely instituted consequence for idolatry for refusing to honor God or give him thanks. And what's the purpose of them being given over to sexual impurity? Last half of verse 24, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. As 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man or the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. 
So sexual sin shames the body. And yet the sexually immoral claim they've been sexually liberated. And that's because their glory is in what? Their shame. Philippians 3.19. And there's a wordplay throughout this passage that revolves around honor. We obviously see honor here in verse 24. The degrading passions of verse 26 are dishonorable passions. And the indecent acts of verse 27 are shameless deeds. And so, because man refuses to honor God, God gives him over to the dishonoring of his body by means of dishonorable passions and the committing of shameless or dishonorable deeds. And yet it's not as if their sexual impurity originates with the the judicial act of God giving them over. After all, they're given over in what? Verse 24 says, in the lusts of their hearts. So the lusts of their hearts pre-exist this judicial act. They're given over to what they already desire. But they're given over in such a way that they're plunged ever more deeply into the depths of sin, climaxing in a depraved mind. And Paul restates the basis for this judicial act, verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. The truth of God here is the truth that God has revealed concerning himself in creation. That which is clearly seen being understood through what has been made. The very truth that man suppresses in unrighteousness. And they exchange that truth not just for a lie, but literally the lie. claiming that God doesn't exist and that he's not worthy of worship. As one commentator writes, the fundamental truth of the universe is that God exists and that he should be worshiped and served. And when you reject that truth, you inevitably worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, which is the essence of idolatry putting any aspect of the created order in the place of God. In fact, listen to 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Paul says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That's what salvation is. Turning to God from idols to worship and serve him. And then as Paul is describing this exchange, he's almost swept up in this spontaneous expression of adoration, horrified at the thought of such dishonor being rendered to God 
and says at the end of verse 25, who is blessed forever, amen. And so God's transcendent blessedness, which is bound up in his very essence, is by no means harmed by man's idolatrous denial of who he is. God is forever and unchangeably blessed. And we all said, amen. And so the first signs that God's wrath of abandonment is being unleashed on a nation is when it becomes entrenched in sexual sin. To borrow the words of the Apostle Paul, it's when a nation becomes callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Ephesians 4.19. And when that happens, scandal becomes commonplace. Families are destroyed by means of adultery at pandemic proportions. Everything in the culture begins to gravitate toward the gratification of sexual impulses. Entertainment becomes increasingly sexualized. Music becomes increasingly sexualized. Movies become increasingly sexualized. Commercials become increasingly sexualized. And with that comes a downgrade on the importance of the sanctity of marriage, a downgrade on the significance of the family. Divorce runs rampant. And in a Judeo-Christian culture, efforts will begin to be made to remove God from society altogether. And that essentially brings us to the turn of this century. We're already well into the final phase of this thing. So that's the first consequence of refusing to worship God. The consequence of sexual impurity. And now the second, the consequence of homosexuality. The consequence of homosexuality, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And as I said, degrading passions are dishonorable passions. Where passions refer to the experience of strong desires. And so again, because man dishonors God, God gives him over to the dishonoring of his own body, to dishonorable passions, and to the committing of dishonorable deeds. And these dishonorable passions produce another exchange, an exchange that can be branded as against nature. Next part of verse 26, for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. So man dishonorably exchanges the truth of God for a lie and that results in another dishonorable exchange where women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural, homosexuality. And the word for women here is not the typical word for women. This really ought to be rendered females. In fact, the same is true for the word rendered men in verse 27. It ought to be rendered males. And so Paul is 
almost certainly drawing from the creation account in Genesis, where it says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, Genesis 1.27. And by employing these terms, Paul is emphasizing their sexual distinctiveness. And that amplifies that sexual relations between the same gender, of which there are only two, and of which neither are fluid, goes against God's design and creation. In fact, the word function can also be rendered relations. But either way, both terms refer to sexual intercourse. And that homosexuality is against nature, is expressed in the word unnatural at the end of verse 26, which is two words in the Greek and literally means just that, against nature. Verse 27, and in the same way, also, the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. So in this horrific exchange, which is against God's intentional design for creation, males abandon the natural function of the woman, burn in their desire for one another, and commit indecent acts acts which are shameless and are therefore shameful. And they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. So what's their error? It's exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creator, verse 25. So what's their penalty? the degrading passions that result in committing indecent acts, the penalty for their exchanging of God for idolatry is homosexuality. Homosexuality is the penalty that they receive, the due penalty for their error, which they receive in themselves. Homosexuality itself is the penalty. Which is rather ironic since when they claim, since what they claim as sexual liberation is actually what? The judgment of God. And I want you to be very aware of the way that God's word in this portion of scripture characterizes homosexuality. It is an expression of sexual impurity. It's that which dishonors the body. It's a degrading passion. It's against nature. It's shameful, and it's evidence of a rejection of God. There is no mistake that homosexuality is sin. And the way Paul frames this indicates that homosexuality is the distinguishing mark of God abandoning a people. It's the distinguishing mark of God's wrath on a nation. 
You know that God has abandoned a nation when homosexuality is not only legalized, but normalized. Why is that? Why is it that homosexuality is such a distinguishing mark of God's wrath of abandonment? Because it turns the created order upside down. And that's exactly what you do when you worship the creature rather than the creator. You turn the creation on its head. That homosexuality is the exact opposite of God's design and creation is patently obvious. And that worshiping the creature rather than the creator is patently obvious as well. Homosexuality is the just penalty for the crime. Turn the creation on its head by worshiping the creation over the creator, receive the exact same reality in sexual sin, a complete turning of the created order upside down. And I want you to appreciate something else here. This passage identifies that both the underlying desire and the act itself are dishonorable, unnatural. The indecent acts of homosexuality are produced by degrading passions, strong and dishonorable desires. And that's because sinful desires are what? Sinful. And that sinful desires are sinful is expressed as early, if not earlier, as the 10th commandment. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And what does it mean to covet? It means to desire. And so the 10th commandment is a prohibition against sinful desires. Thou shalt not covet. And what does Jesus say? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery in the heart is tantamount to what? Adultery. And so homosexual desire is categorically sinful and must be both repented of and mortified. And that means that any sexual orientation that is contrary to God's word is absolutely sinful. In fact, even when you're tempted to sin, you likely have something to confess. If you haven't carried out the sin outwardly, then you don't need to confess that. But you likely both experienced and entertained desires in yourself where you wanted to carry that out, desires that are expressly forbidden, and you need to repent of them. As you seek to put sin to death in your life, you need to confess those desires as sinful 
Now, as this epistle unfolds, Paul's going to get into the mortification of sin. And yet I know you probably want something now. And so you might be thinking, but how do I change my desires? And here's the answer, and it comes from this epistle. But I'll just read it to you because you probably already know it by heart. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Through the renewing of your mind, your desires will change. You say, but how do I renew my mind? You renew your mind in the truth. So where do you find the truth? John 17, 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So renewing your mind takes place by means of both believing and understanding God's word, believing and understanding the whole counsel of God. And so to renew your mind, you must saturate your mind with the word of God. Homosexuality, in all its forms and expressions, is categorically sinful. And it's the second consequence of refusing to worship God. Now third, the consequence of a depraved mind. The consequence of a depraved mind. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And there's another wordplay here. The word rendered depraved can also be rendered unfit. And so as in the LSB, this can be rendered, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind. They had tested the worth of the knowledge of God and deemed it to be worthless. And so God gives the mind that deems him worthless over to worthlessness. And again, you can see how this is a just judicial act in response to man's response to God. And that their mind is rendered depraved or unfit means that it's unqualified, unable to fulfill its God-intended purpose. And yet this speaks to more than merely their intellectual capacities. It renders them incapable of making sound moral judgments. In fact, even the willing processes of the mind are disqualified rendering them incapable of willing in accord with God's will. And so this harkens back to verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. 
and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. And that their unfit mind results in the complete corruption of their will is expressed at the end of verse 28. The mind and the actions go hand in hand. It says there to do those things which are not proper. And the word rendered proper can actually be rendered fitting. So this would say, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not fitting. And then Paul provides a vice list of all of those things that a prayed mind does. A list that breaks up into three main parts. The first main part consisting of the first four words governed by being filled. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. Four general designations for sin that are intended to provide a comprehensive summation of all human immorality. The second main part consists of the five words modified by the word full. Next part of verse 29, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, where some see envy as the root of the other four, the root of murder, strife, malice, and deceit. The third main part consists of the final 12 vices. And of verse 29, they are gossips, slanderers. So they are prone to the destruction of one's reputation. It says they're haters of God, insolent or violent, arrogant, boastful, they're proud. This is the boastful pride of life, 1 John 2. Inventors of evil, where there is a thoughtful, strategic inventing of evil. Disobedient to parents. Without understanding or void of understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, which is a word that means without regard for others and can be rendered unfeeling or hard-hearted. And finally, unmerciful. And if that doesn't accurately depict our society today, it most definitely depicts its trajectory. All of the vices in this list are evident in our culture and in more recent times, shockingly so. And then notice the final verse, a verse that's intended to highlight that man's rebellion against God is absolutely willful. 
Verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And there are three stunning realities in this verse. One is that they know the ordinance of God. Where the ordinance refers to a regulation relating to just or right action and can be rendered regulation, requirement, or commandment. So they know. They know. You say, well, how do they know? Romans 2, 14 and following would be helpful. Romans 2, 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, verse 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. They know. So their rebellion is entirely willful. The second stunning reality is that they know that those who practice such things are worthy of death. That the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, where death speaks to judgment. So they inherently know that what they're doing is deserving of divine judgment. And three, the third stunning reality is that giving approval to sin is depicted as being a worse sin than committing the sin itself. Look again at verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. The not only but also structure of that statement renders the approval of sin to be a more serious offense than the sin itself. And you may be thinking, well, how can that be? How can it be that the one who approves of the sin is more culpable before God than the one who carries the sin out? And a number of reasons are given, but let me give you just one. And I quote, those who condone and applaud the vicious acts of others are actually making a deliberate contribution to the setting up of public opinion favorable to vice, and so to the corruption of an indefinite number of other people, unquote. Can you see that? to the extent that you are contributing to a public disposition that would deem vice to be favorable, you are more guilty than the actual vice being committed itself. So who in society hold positions that afford them the opportunity to shape public opinion about sin? Government? 
Just consider our government. They're legislating unrighteousness. That is giving hearty approval to those who practice the very things that they know are deeds worthy of death. The media, A journalist might think that they're sort of an innocent bystander in all of this. No. So long as they are doing journalism with an agenda, and so long as that agenda is consistent with the depravity of man being deemed favorable, they are just increasing their judgment. The entertainment industry, parents, Teachers, consider the way that children are being indoctrinated in schools. Religious figures, false teachers, and the list goes on. And so let that sink in for a moment. Not only is a person storing up eternal wrath for themselves on account of their own sin, they're even storing up wrath for themselves to the extent that they contribute to the sin of others. All the while knowing the ordinance of God and that those who practice such things are worthy of death. And I think if you look at our society, it's apparent that our nation has been given over to a depraved mind, which is only going to progress. I could just list all of the realities that are present in our society, which no doubt will climax at this moment in time with Drag Queen Story Hour. And it would be apparent that our culture has lost the ability to make sound moral judgments. Our culture is insane. And you have to understand that this trajectory can only be interrupted by one thing. When you look at the trajectory of our nation, it all ties back to the wrath of God. And the reason that his wrath is unleashed upon man is because man refuses to worship him. And so there's only one solution to interrupt this process, and it is what? Worship. There's lots of talk right now about Christian nationalism and forming a Christian nation, there is no way political strategy can reverse this. You are working against the wrath of God. What's happening in our society is the wrath of God, and you cannot mitigate that but for regeneration, which means you must preach the gospel and call people to repentance. There is no other way.
And so it is obvious that God's wrath of abandonment is being unleashed from heaven on our nation against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's evident in our nation's sexual impurity. It's evident in our nation's practice and celebration of homosexuality. And it's evident in our nation's inability to make sound moral judgments. Now, though this is a judicial act, is it final? When God delivers a person over to their depravity, is it final? Is there no way back? It's not final. It's certainly a down payment that if you persist in your ways, not only are you experiencing the wrath of God now and his abandonment, that you're going to receive eternal wrath in judgment should you go to the grave rejecting Christ and refusing to worship God, but it's not final. All you need to do is turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is doing is proving that we need a savior, that every one of us needs a savior. And he's proving that salvation is entirely the work of God. God is the one who accomplishes redemption and he does so in his son. So he sent him into the world to live the life that you couldn't, die the death that you deserve, rise from the grave on the third day and ascend to the right hand of the Father, where he is now seated upon the Father's throne. And it's on you to acknowledge what you already know, that God is and that he's worthy of worship. And to acknowledge the reality that you know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. And to turn from those things and look to the Savior and believe on him and receive total forgiveness, imputed righteousness, where God will credit you with the perfect righteousness of Christ, where you'll be set free from sin, receive the Holy Spirit, have a new heart with new longings and cravings for righteousness, where you will hunger and thirst for righteousness, and where you will begin the process of being ever more conformed into the image of Christ, where the whole process of your depravity and being given over to a depraved mind will be reversed. And the image of God, which every human has and is marred in the fall and marred by sin, will be renewed as you're conformed into Christ's image. And with that, I think it would be helpful to consider the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following, where he says this, or do you not know 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so it's not final. Salvation is extended to all who have breath. An opportunity is given right now to receive Christ by faith and be delivered from this horrific exchange where you have turned the creation upside down and are experiencing the repercussions in your own body for the same thing. God is worthy of worship. Let's worship him in prayer. Father, we are grateful for your word. You are transcendent and your word reveals transcendent realities, realities that we could only comprehend and appreciate for the fact that you have revealed them to us. And we marvel at the way your word speaks to our present moment in time with such clarity that answers the very question that this present time generates. And so, Father, we give you honor, glory, and praise. And we acknowledge that your response to man's idolatry is perfectly just. That you are right in all of your ways. And that you are holy, holy, holy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.